Welcome to Think and Act Differently, the modern mining podcast. I'm Katie Humes, founder of Think and Act Differently. In this episode, we'll explore the many dimensions of communications. From local stakeholders to global audiences, just how might we better connect? I've got two fantastic communicators with me, the incredible Carly Leonida, freelance technical writer and editor and founder of Intelligent Miner, and Anya Hart, field trials and stakeholder co-design lead at Think and Act Differently. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Hi, Katie. Thank you. I have to ask you, Anya, how did you end up in a role with such an obscure title, Field Trials and Stakeholder Co-Design? There's got to be some stories behind that. (laughs) Well, it probably summarises my specialist generalist background (laughs) quite nicely, I suppose, coming from a technical background, but really sort of delving into the roles of different stakeholder groups over the course of my career. This sort of bring brings it together and allows us to play with that a little bit more. So um gives me the opportunity to run some exciting things on the ground, some tangible things, but also work with some of the people that those activities impact as well and build that into the work that we do. And Carly, there's not too many people that do what you do. I have to hear your story. How did you end up with the intelligent miner? I guess it's a long story, really. I trained as a geologist originally and moved into the writing side of the industry about 15 years ago. Worked my way around various trade publications, and I still write for one of them now. And I just felt that there was space for a publication or a title that could talk about mining in a way that was slightly different, that could make the subject of mining interesting and accessible for wider audiences. Because I think that's a really huge part of the sustainability challenge that we're up against is talking to people outside of our kind of core remit. The industry is very good at talking to itself, but there aren't many places that people can go to learn about mining really and to get involved. And I wanted to create that. I find it really inspiring when people want to share the story of mining widely, because to want to do that, it means there's a love for this industry, and and I I certainly share that. So I uh, I love that this is where you've uh, taken your career. How are these stories traditionally shared prior to you working in this space? And and I know lots changed over the years with different communication methods becoming available to us. But what's the industry normally done to share its stories? Well, I think the sort of the point being that we we aren't very good at sharing stories outside of our industry. We like to talk to ourselves quite a lot. So. We've obviously got the traditional trade publications, which you know used to be fully print, and a lot of them now have an online presence as well. And those obviously have a, a core readership that those publications are distributed to. And then perhaps people might share those on social media, those stories. But generally, a lot of the stuff isn't written for wider audiences, and it's not shared with them. I always think about when I started in the industry, and I would talk to people and say, oh, I work in mining, I'm a mining journalist. And they kind of go, oh. And then the subject would get changed. Whereas now, you know, 15 years later, people go, oh, that's quite interesting. What's this got to do with the energy transition? So, yeah, there's a growing interest, particularly like the intelligent miner now. Again, it's a lot of the stories are shared via social media, but there's a slightly wider reach, I think. It's funny for me when I think about the word story. And story has so many different definitions and connotations associated with it. I mean, we can have fiction stories. We can have nonfiction stories. Anya, is the word story resonating with you? Is that the right word? Well, I guess because it's such a broad term, I guess you could make it fit. But, you know, adding on to what Carly was saying about us telling our stories, I think traditionally it's come from a technical base. We talk to other technical Mm. mining people about technical mining stuff as opposed to it being something for the 
people, the broad audience and, and all of the people that it impacts. So, you know, I think story is probably where we should shift and that way we can tailor that story to the people that it matters most to in their language, in their terms, in their context, you know, so whether it's school kids or landowners or colleagues. So Anya, you've got a, a such an interesting background having spent so long working in junior explorers, small mining houses and, and you know, even dabbled in with the, the bigger end of town. But most of your work has been right at the front with the stakeholders talking to landowners and, and pastoralists, farmers, community groups. Yeah, it is. Uh, and funny, thinking about this conversation over the last couple of days, I can't help but get out of my head a tough conversation I had with a stakeholder who was also my youngest daughter, who was probably about nine at the time. And when I started my role with Oz Mineral, she said, oh, so you're going to be poisoning the earth. So, you know, I think that's a good reflection of where at the story of our industry is at. You know, this is a girl that's grown up in a household with a mum that's worked in mining all her life. Um, so, yeah, I obviously have a bit of work to do. But when you're at the cold face, so to speak, you really understand what matters to people about mining. And it's not about how much copy you're going to get out of that or, you know, recoveries and dollars. It's about their homes and their lives and what role their children will play in that. And it's really personal. So there's some pretty tough conversations that need to be had. And, you know, I think my thoughts around that have probably evolved over the years as I've evolved as a person, as a parent, as a, you know, professional and the industry is evolving as well, which I think is a really, it's heading in the right direction, but, you know, there's still a lot of work to do. So Carly, bringing together a kind of a local audience and a global audience is almost like two completely different things. How do you find that kind of local messaging playing out in the work that you're doing? It's a tricky one. When I'm communicating, when I'm writing for different audiences, I have to be really mindful about the language that I'm using, the terms that I'm using, and the way that I'm putting those subjects into perspective. So, you know, it's a lot of local terms or regional terms for stuff that we talk about in mining. So, for instance, if I was writing for an Australian mining publication, and we were talking about, say, the machines that or vehicles that dig ore underground, I might use the term bogger. Whereas in other markets, that might be called a load haul dumper. And quite often that would get shortened to the acronym LHD. But if I was writing for a global audience and particularly people outside of mining, you know, they think, what the hell is that? Got no clue. So I have to be quite careful about, you know, using plain English and thinking about how people will perceive the subjects and the terms that you're using. I really like to put I say put mining into perspective, and that's the tagline of the intelligent miner. But I think when you want to get people, particularly outside of the industry, engaged with what you're doing and interested in what you're talking about, it's really important to relate the subject of mining, mining operations and processes back to stuff that's going on in their day-to-day -day lives. So, you know, I will try and link, you know, the metals that we're digging up to, say, the cell phone that you're holding or the materials that have been used to build your house, or even like the makeup that you're using and the materials, the micas and things that go into that. Are you finding that through changing the messages that you're putting out, you're actually attracting a different audience to want to be a part of that conversation? Yeah. And that's actually really exciting, I think, because the, the challenges that the mining industry is up against at the moment, things like decarbonizing operations, restoring the environments that are impacted by mining, eliminating waste or storing mine waste better, things like that. We really need more people. We need fresh thinking and we need fresh talent, diverse talent from outside of the industry to come in 
and make things better. We can't change if nothing changes at the end of the day. So in talking to a broader audience, we've got that opportunity to secure our own future, essentially. I think it's incredible to watch the shift that's taking place. Anya, I'm curious, in your past project work, are these global issues of decarbonisation, supply chain certainty, circularity, all of these things that are really relevant today, are they front of mind for the stakeholders in the communities where these mines are being developed? Yeah. I think if you're talking to a fifth generation farmer about acquiring their land to put a processing plant on, they're not necessarily worried about supply chain <laughs> certainty or, you know, decarbonisation. Those challenges for the mining industry that Carly spoke about are not unique to the mining industry. They're obviously everybody's issue. But I think when it boils down to the house that you live in and the home that you've built for your family and your um, livelihood potentially, and it's not to say that all mines are on f- farming land and that the impacts are always great, but it's definitely a whole different context, right? But I get to this point, and particularly when you start thinking about some of the work that we're doing with the Think and Act Differently team, we should ask ourselves, does it need to be a compromise? You know, is it always going to be a winner and a loser for the greater good, you know, or is there an opportunity to open that up more and seek other people's perspectives, whether it's in technology or whether it's the way we deal with traditional owners or how we secure employment for local communities. You know, I think there is a a broader conversation around where the benefits should lie. I am pretty sure that you have come up against this complexity of language that Carly mentioned as well around, you know, how many words are we using when we're explaining concepts to local community that don't make sense uh, in the context. How have you overcome that in the work you've been doing? You've just got to be really honest and open. I think that it's no different to conversations you have in everyday life about all kinds of things. You know, it is very difficult for people who are largely technical people. And that is a challenge with junior miners and startups in particular. They don't necessarily have access to experts in communications and stakeholder engagement and to help them deliver those messages in in plain English. But, you know, I think If you can have an open and honest conversation with them around, you know, what the impacts will be and what the options are and and actually treat them like a human being. I mean, it sounds silly almost, but, you know, really that's what it comes down to. It's about any kind of relationship. It's about building trust and developing a language, some common ground that you can both speak from. I love this concept of trust. I think anyone that works with me knows that's what I base everything I I do on is trust my gut, trust the people I work with, build, build those relationships. Does trust show up in communications generally, Carly? Like, is that something that readers look for when they pick their, I guess, mediums of choice, their articles that they're going to keep going back to? It's massive. For me, it's really important to build a trust with my readers. And the way I do that is through being consistent with the messaging that I'm putting out and the topics that I'm exploring. Accuracy is so important when we're talking about really technical subjects. And obviously, you know, some of the ones that we talk about in mining, if I'm writing for a trade publication, that can be about like metallurgy, it can be geology. I'm really, really diligent about fact checking and getting people to, particularly the experts who have contributed to my articles, getting them to reread what I've written before it's published. Because I think the very last thing that we need right now, you know, the industry is working really hard on building trust with its stakeholders. The last thing we need is incorrect information being put out in the public domain. When we're talking about mining companies and companies in the mining space building trust with their stakeholders, transparency is so important. It is absolutely vital. And I think there's often a lot of perceived risk that comes with transparency. 
you know, companies perhaps don't want to talk about stuff that they've done wrong in the past or stuff that might not be being done to the highest standard today. But I really think that there's value in talking openly about that and owning that story, for want of a better word. And yeah, saying, let's talk about this. Let's get some feedback. I'm willing to listen to you if there is something that I can do better on. If we want to build trust, we've got to do that. And that is going to involve owning things that haven't been done so well in the past, as well as the stuff that's been done well, because there is a lot of stuff that the industry is doing right at the moment, but nobody's perfect. That's so true. And I think it's also good to be able to say, well, we don't know. You know, it's not just about sharing what you do know. It's being able to say, well, we don't know that or we don't know that yet. We can provide that information later or, you know, it's being honest about what we do and what we don't know. Those three little words, I don't know make many people very, very uncomfortable. And yet I think it's the key to the change that this industry has to make is there's lots we don't know. And unless we share that, we're never going to achieve our lofty aspirations. It kind of makes me think about the work you're doing at the moment and you're around the in-situ recovery works. It's a whole lot of new technology development that we don't know a lot about. How are you finding the engagement process around development of new technology and how are you thinking about that given that this has got a number of years to play out? Yeah, it does. And I guess you use some reference points as a starting point that are familiar to people. And I think the Kapunda project in particular, we're in a town that's got a long mining history. So I think that's certainly helpful. People can see what's been done before. So in some ways there's some visibility around that. But again, I think it just goes back to being open and transparent about the work we're doing and sharing what we're doing and getting, you know, stakeholder ownership around the risks that we're managing and what we're doing to manage those risks and putting some rigour around the regulatory framework that we're leaning on and the work that we've done to, to set that up right from the start. And again, it goes back to building trust, starting that conversation early. So the people that it impacts are part of the journey. There's nothing better than conversations starting early and yet we often don't get started because we don't know what to talk about and so we avoid just jumping off and having a conversation and see where it goes. Are people willing to pivot once those conversations start? I think most people are because I think most people want to see things done better than they have been. You know, I think people, mining has a legacy issue, let's be honest. You know, everybody has a story that goes back generations. I've had some funny conversations with people that, you know, mining company comes and knocks on their door for something relatively minor, setting up a noise monitor or something. And they say, oh, you know, you guys are all the same. My grandfather, something or other, you know, that there are literally like generational (laughs) scars in the industry at a really personal level. But given the conversations that are happening, you know, nationally and internationally around decarbonisation and electrification and climate change and um, policy changes, I think that is permeating down to a local level. And I think people want to see things done better. So, you know, I think that's a really good starting point for the conversation that, you know, we can be part, we can be part of that together. Yeah, we've still got a bit of a challenge, I think, Carly, in terms of international universities, whether it's, you know, uh, superannuation funds, whatever, they're still not 100% behind the industry. What's not working at the moment in terms of the big end of town understanding each other? there are a lot of misconceptions about mining. And a lot of that is due to the fact that people just don't understand what goes on within the mining industry and therefore don't have the tools and the knowledge and the contacts to write about this subject in a way that is future fit. 
So I guess that is partly our responsibility to reach out, to make contact with these people and to, to open the doors essentially and say, come in and learn, come and see what we do. We can show you and we can explain this so that you can then explain it to your audiences properly. But I think also a lot of it's down to the way that the general public talks about mining amongst itself, the way that we talk about mining in schools um, and in higher education. Quite often, it's a really vital piece of the conversation that is missing. I mean, I studied geology at university and there really wasn't that much talk about mining and considering it's you know, a core discipline for mining, it would have been really nice to see a bit more of that. But also, you know, kids at school, younger kids, my kids are five and seven, and they've been learning a lot recently about like waste management and pollution and things like that. That's a huge opportunity to talk about mining and the role that we can play in making the future better. And yeah, I put my hand up and said, I can come in and talk to the kids about this if you like. And I think the teacher actually didn't know what to make of that, but they were open to it. So, so I'm glad they are interested if we create those opportunities and make ourselves available. It's funny because children these days are growing up in an environment whereby everything is available to them. They, they can go to the supermarkets, they go to the shops, they get their products. It's, it's all right there. Uh, and our industry is often very regional, very remote uh, in something that they're not able to touch and feel. Do you think that plays into the way that schools are exposing young people to the mining sector? It's not a day trip that you can do as an excursion to go and have a look. Does that affect the way we think about it? Definitely. The, the tricky thing with mining is because mines have to be built where the ore bodies are. You know, it's not like a factory whereby you can position it. You can locate that factory somewhere that would be really handy for the supply chain. You know, we, we just don't have the opportunity to go and visit a lot of mines. I mean, particularly I live in the UK. There just aren't that many mines, particularly ones that would let school children come and have a look around. Yet I think kids in particular would love to do that. They would be super interested to go and have a look. And that is a, yeah, it's a huge opportunity to change those kids' perceptions and to get them interested and to make them aware of the role that mining plays in their day-to-day -day lives. That could really, particularly at that young formative age, could really set the stage for the way they think about the industry as an employer as, as part of their day-to-day -day lives, as an opportunity going forward rather than a threat. I was only chatting to someone today about the fact that if we haven't got our young people picking subjects and career directions by the time they're halfway through their high school years, we're probably not going to get them into the universities to study and our numbers are dropping off so dramatically. So we really need to focus on the younger generations. So both of you with your children, I have great hope uh, that there are children coming through in the next generation that will uh, want to work in our in our industry. Your children, Carly, five and seven, that's clearly where we need to be having conversations. And I'm not, you know, I think government and our education system needs to play a role in that if we see that as an important part of the future. Because I'm not sure that we would drag all kids out to a mine site. I mean, one of the, one of the projects I worked at is 45 minutes out of the CBD of Adelaide. And I used to get a lot of retirees come through on buses. I was pretty down pat with a little microphone at the front of the bus. Um, I had to limit myself to two a week because we had that many coming through. But also they're also great advocates. You know, I think wherever we have an opportunity to have a conversation about what the industry does and people can touch and feel what we're doing, you know, we need to make it accessible somehow we need to have those conversations but I think from an education perspective it really needs to start early. I'm fascinated by this conversation we've been having about getting 
our next generation into the workforce and, and getting the young people passionate about mining and, and how we might communicate to them. But what would happen, Carly, if we just stopped talking about mining? It's a good question. I think we would end up with a massive shortage of talent because, you know, although mining processes are very mechanized and automated today, we still need people there supervising those machines. We just wouldn't have those people. And the industry is already feeling the impact of that shortage in so many areas. We would lose what trust we have already built. If we also just stopped talking about mining, you know, we wouldn't have the solutions for a lot of the problems that already exist. So when we think about things like water used in the mining process, we can't mine without water today. We just don't have the technologies and the know-how to do it yet. We're not going to find solutions for that. And if we stop talking to people outside of the industry, we're not we're not going to find them, basically. I wrote a really interesting article recently on innovation in mining. And a lot of the people that I interviewed said, you know, these technologies that we need, these ideas that we need are actually probably not going to come from within the mining and metals ecosystem. They're going to come from companies, startups particularly, outside of the industry. If we don't invite those people in and give them the opportunity to get involved, then we've got a big problem on our hands, basically. Globally, we can kiss goodbye to our climate change mitigation targets. On the flip side of challenge is opportunity. And if we do all of those things, if we talk about mining more widely, if we invite companies and innovative thinkers in, if we reform our educational systems to include mining and metals, then we've got the opportunity. We're at a point in time whereby we can probably still salvage the targets that are in the Paris Agreement and turn things around. What about yourself, Anya? What would happen if we just stopped talking about mining? I can't help but go back to a, a comment that one of my managers back in the day said to me, and it was based around community engagement, but it can be applicable at a global level, that if you leave a, if you leave a vacuum, people will fill it with BS. So that is exactly what will happen at a global level. It would be disastrous. I also think at a you know more um, local grassroots industry level, we lose the opportunity to bring the next generation into an industry that's so critical to turning those things around and meeting those targets that we're really um, you know push pushing hard now to try and turn things around. And if we lose that audience, well, if we don't get the opportunity to gain that audience, where does that leave us? It's hard, it's hard to even imagine, really. I don't think it would work very well for the work we're doing in Think and Act Differently if we weren't willing to talk about mining. No. So I want to come back to the role of technology in communications. And we've got things like you know, chat GPT, we've got your virtual realities, we've got all of these different things hitting the market now, and they're changing the way we communicate. They're, they're changing the speed of which you can get information. They're changing the accuracy of the information. How are you seeing that show up in your work, Carly? And how's it making you think about maybe the next five or 10 years of, of the work you're doing? I was having this chat with a client recently and they said, have you used this chat GPT? Because it's really good. We can put together, you know, a thousand word article on mind planning or short interview interval control or something like that really quickly and it is really accurate are you a bit worried that it's going to put you out of a job and I was thinking about I've had a go actually and it is a good tool but I mean most of the articles that I write are based on first person interviews with industry experts that is not something that you can get through 
an AI-based tool. So the value that I provide is finding those experts, people with really interesting, slightly different opinions, bringing them together, asking them questions, sometimes quite difficult ones, and then collating those responses and putting them into perspective for readers. I think AI-based tools are great, but they can't do that yet. Where those tools do come in use is for people who want sort of an introduction to the industry or to certain mining processes and things. You can very quickly collate lots of publicly available information on a particular subject. And there is value in that if you want to learn the basics. But I think if you want to go a bit deeper and you really want to understand all the little nuances and issues that are going on, you still need a person to do that. Communications actually a deeply human activity. Two mm. people looking in each other's eyes, having a conversation about something is certainly how I define communication. So I think um, that's not there with some of these new technologies. And yeah, I can remember days when we were doing community engagement for projects and, and we would be trying to explain what a mine would look like. And these days we can actually put a set of virtual reality goggles on and take someone there. Have you seen that that's changed the way people are engaging with the projects in the early days? I think to the conversation we've just had around, you know, eyeballing people and having conversations and building trust, I think there are certain audiences where that can work, where you can show them, oh, this is what it will look like, this is what your view will look like, this is what the site could look like post-closure. But, you know, I think it depends on the level of impact or how engaged they are in the process. I think if the impact is deeply personal, then the communication needs to be deeply personal. Probably, you know, in education and talking to kids about what minds look like, there's those digital tools and some of those um, visual visual tools are phenomenal, you know, applications. But I think it's difficult to replace good person-to-person -person communication with people who are deeply invested. Maybe it's a generational thing too, you know, maybe that will change. Maybe when our kids are are uh, having those conversations at some point, it will be different. But, you know, I think those that have grown up where, you know, building trust and shaking somebody's hand is important, I find it hard to believe that we could replace that 100% with technology today anyway. So I want to ask you both a bit of a question about where do you two find your information? So how do you keep up to speed with what's happening and what's going on around us? And maybe, Carly, I'll start with you. Um, I read a lot. I read, obviously, the industry publications and the very technical stuff. I read um, general general interest publications. I read around the subject of mining. I think that's really important, you know, things like metals recycling, you know, new materials development, stuff like that. And I listen to a lot of stuff too. There's a lot of really great podcasts, obviously, this one, but there are plenty of podcasts now about mining with people who are really personable and can make the subject engaging. And, and most importantly, as I said earlier, I do speak to a lot of industry experts directly. I actually get out and chat to them face-to-face -face at events or catch up with them on a Zoom call or whatever. For me, having that information from a first person, somebody who has really deep knowledge and experience of the subject is really important, not just in sort of enhancing my own understanding of subjects, but in enabling me to then explain those subjects to other people as well. It's like building on a passion and a deep curiosity for you really, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That's pretty much what the Intelligent Miner is, just me geeking out with a bunch of my friends. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like an absolute dream. 
What about you, Anya? Well, I have a confession to make. I don't read a whole lot. Um, certainly not a, a, a bookworm by any stretch, but I do listen to a lot of audiobooks and podcasts and I pick up articles of personal interest probably, you know, and there probably is a blurred line, a bit like you, Carly, the things that I geek, geek out on in my personal life um, overlap with my work passions as well. So um, that certainly helps. But, you know, I think the mining industry and particularly the junior um, and startup space that I've been in for the last 10 or 15 years, I think we can be quite insular. You get quite invested in, you know, your own, your own project. And because the teams are generally quite small, I've had to make a really big effort to make sure that I keep my networks wide. So I've always gone out of my way to just have coffees, pick up the telephone, have a Zoom call, get involved in, you know, advisory groups. And so it's talking to peers and talking to people in different industries and in government and in education, you know, just making sure that you get a broad range of views. So when you do have conversations with people, you can pick up those different sort of contextual um, pieces so when we started Think and Act Differently, it was the first time I was exposed to this whole concept of regular communications with a crowd, needing to post regularly on social media, the importance of following up comments. It starts to become quite a commitment or an obligation almost to maintain those audiences once you start these conversations. Are there any tricks of the trade that, that you would be willing to share with us, Carly, that you've learned over the years around how do you not just build an audience, but but keep one? Well, I'm not sure they'd be tricks of the trade. And if you find it a bit all-consuming, you probably don't want to hear this, but consistency is so key, not just in like social media, but also in how often you post stories. A lot of people say to me, oh, maybe I should start a blog about this. And I'm always a bit cautious and say, that's great, you can do, but you have to be prepared to commit to this for a number of years. And you've got to be willing to publish a story or put out a social media post at least, you know, once a week, once a month, as long as it's on a regular basis. That is really important because that's, you know, when readers come to, when they expect what you're going to put out, then they'll keep coming back. I also think it's really important not just to judge the success of our communications on how many likes or how many shares or how many people read something. I mean, that's always nice, but for me, like success is when somebody comes up to me and says, that was a really great story. It got me chatting with my colleagues or my husband or somebody who works in another industry about XYZ at the water cooler. And we're going to do something about that. That's success for me because change starts the conversation at the end of the day. It is hard to not look at how many views your post has had and how many likes it's had from the start. So there's a certain level of comfort you have to have in yourself when you're putting these messages out uh, and just trust the process almost, isn't it? Yeah, it can be really hard, particularly on topics that are very sensitive. And you sort of think, oh, am I 100% comfortable? You know, sometimes I read stories like 10, 20 times over to make sure I am 100% comfortable with everything I'm going to share before I do. But I think there is value in having difficult conversations. We shouldn't shy away from them. I completely agree. And that shows up in in the work that you're doing, Anya, if we only tell the bits we know and we only tell the good bits, then we're going to definitely not build that trust as we've been talking about before. I'm just picking up on this point from from Carly around consistency. I think that the traditional engagement process with communities around things like new technologies or new projects sometimes isn't maybe as consistent as it could be or should be. 
What's the role of uh, the regulatory frameworks and the approvals processes and all of those things in terms of uh, determining how people are going to engage and how regularly they're going to engage? How should we think about that? Well, it's a baseline minimum, right? That's the way I sort of see it. This is what this is the bare minimum that you should do to get something over the line. There's almost like an un, unwritten assumption that you should do more. And good operators obviously will. Getting to that point is only part of the journey. I think what regulation does is it, and provided that it's operating, the relationship between operators and the regulator is um, is sound. You know, it does provide some comfort, I guess, to, to people and to other industries that, that we work with and people that we partner with that there is um, a backbone, I guess, that, that we work towards. It should be the bare minimum. If, or companies that want to do well should obviously be going over and above that. So can you just do one community engagement session before a submission and tick the box? Well, plenty do. Plenty do, as you probably know. There's lots of stories about um, what, what people think is required of them. And, you know, I think their results and probably even if they do get the project over the line, the journey that they go through while they're operating is probably reflective of how good a relationship they've built with their stakeholders through that path. But I don't think people can get away with that now. And the regulators are another key member of our ecosystem within the mining sector. They're they're equally able to access the same information that we all are. Uh, They're very skilled and experienced in their field of expertise that they're working in, they have a really, really important role. And they're often uh, almost criticised a little bit uh, in terms of the decision-making processes they have to go through. But I think the industry is really reliant on on those regulators being able to do their job. And it's it's on us as an industry to take our stakeholders on a journey, to build advocacy, to be aligned and, and to be on the same page so that we are able to present a united front. Relationships between proponents and the regulator is obviously really important and again same conversation you would have with anybody if they're part of the journey right from the get-go and you share your issues and that then they're part of the solution as well but you know I think you need to make sure that we're not seen to be in each other's pockets if you like because people that are judging us by you know what what we're putting forward or what we're proposing to do need to feel confident that the regulator is has a regulator job and the operator has the operator job so you know I think we need to be careful not to compromise or blow those lines too much yeah it's a it's a constant battle I think particularly in small towns small communities to to keep that governance line really clear Carly I want to pick up we mentioned earlier about language how are you finding the messages that you're sharing with your audience are crossing outside of Western communities and maybe into non-English speaking parts of our wonderful world. Are you focused on accessing that diversity of community or are you still finding that as an area of growth opportunity? I think it's always going to be an area of growth opportunity. We can always do better. But actually, some of the the biggest audiences for the intelligent miner geographically are not in Western countries. Um, like I think India is one of the the biggest readership areas, markets, if that's the correct word. And also uh, we've got quite a lot of people in Indonesia uh, and people in South America too. So it's always something that I'm thinking about. And, and the way that I sort of reflect that in my work, I always try and make sure that I'm talking to a diverse range of people as well so that we can see diversity as well as read diversity of thought. I do really try and seek out a range of different people with different perspectives on different topics. So for instance, I've written quite a lot recently on community engagement 
and I've got some topics coming up on that too. And I've made the effort to try and seek out some indigenous voices who can feed into this because there is so much value in their knowledge. I think it's really important as you know, a writer, it's very easy just to go to the big companies or the people who have a PR team behind them and you can see them in the media. They're very easy and accessible. Uh, but again, if we want things to change, then we need to start changing the, the range of voices and perspectives that we're reading about as well. That's really important. And actually, just to go back to Anya's point and your point, Katie, about regulation, I recently wrote a piece on meaningful engagement, and we talked about that in the context of local communities. I had some of the guys from Acorn International come and chat about it with me. And I think it's a really important concept, not just in our local communications and in the way that we talk to communities, but in the way that we talk to wider audiences as well, you know, making sure that, well, A, having consistency, but then making sure that the messages are culturally appropriate or appropriate for the, for the audiences that we're looking at. Creating space for feedback, whether that's in the comments at the bottom of an article or on social media, it's a concept that should apply to our much wider communications as well as our local ones. We have to be willing to get that feedback. How do we handle that when we get it? What do you do if you are getting feedback that is challenging or confronting? Try and deal with that in a constructive manner. So if Great it's advice. Um, an inaccuracy in my article, I will own that. You know, that's my mistake and I should have checked better beforehand. Um, but if it's just feedback on the topic that we've written about, then I would perhaps call on some some of the experts who have contributed to my piece or other experts that I know within the industry to come and get involved because I don't have all the answers and I shouldn't pretend like I do. These you know people have much more knowledge and experience than me and I think by bringing them into the mix as well, uh, there's a lot of value there in having these conversations. And you know what, sometimes we're not going to always align on our views, but just airing those different views and getting them out on the table is really important. That's my favourite part about the work we do is when we don't agree and we don't have the same perspective. I think that's where the magic lies. I love seeing that come to the forefront. And I think you see over and over again, you don't you don't actually have to agree. Even in some really quite confronting conversations with landowners about potential, you know, mining activities, you don't actually have to agree to build a constructive relationship and have a constructive conversation. We can be philosophically opposed to the whole topic, but still talk about it in a constructive and progressive way you know I think goes back to sort of building that common ground and and at the end of the day it's not actually personal that's the way I sort of always think it's then it's not actually an attack on me personally it's an attack on even though sometimes it comes across that way and it can feel that way because it's hard not to get emotionally invested but it's actually about the circumstance it's an opportunity to learn correct always I don't think there's a day in my entire career where I haven't learned something uh, and then eventually you look back and go, gee, I wish I knew that. When I was doing this job six years ago, I wish I knew that then. And it's all about how you take it forwards, isn't it? It is. And that is one of my most favourite things about working in this industry, actually. No two days are the same. You learn something new every single day. They certainly are. And yeah, I just would love to ask you a bit of a parting question. If any of our listeners are wondering about how they could start to frame up their community engagement programs, their government engagement programs, or even just their employee engagement programs around a piece of work that they're doing, what would be your tips that you would give to them around where to start that process? Just start. I think we overthink these things and we try and design it and engineer it 
the way we do everything else, <laughs> particularly those that are, you know, technically minded. You know, I think we want to orchestrate everything. I think the key is just to start with what you know and listen. I think that's the other key. Provide the forums and safe spaces to have the conversations, whether it's about land acquisition or whether it's about new technologies. And you know, I think it's about sharing what you know, gathering information about what they want more information on, how they want to be engaged, how often they want to be engaged. People are people regardless of what the situations are. So I think you just you just start. There's a very good advice in there for everyone yeah. that's listening. Don't wait, just start. Yeah. My question for you, Carly, for our listeners is uh, how should they think about measuring the impact of their communications? Uh, how can they work out whether it's uh, actually achieving the objective that they set out to achieve? Well, going back to, to what I said earlier about the most impactful stories not being not always being the ones that are sort of my, most widely shared, talk to people. Find out if they've read what you've written or what you've talked about in a podcast. You know, create that space, that opportunity for feedback and for them to ask questions and to learn a bit more. And, you know, reach out to to different publications as well. I think everybody likes to stay in their safe space. But, you know, if it's something that you feel passionate about, that you would like to see mining or, you know, a specific subtopic within mining talked about more widely, don't be afraid approach some different publications, some general interest ones that are read by wider audiences and offer to write something for them. Because actually you can probably start some important conversations with people off the back of those. I've had an absolute blast talking to you two today. I think the message that we've left our listeners with is get started, build trust, be transparent, and maybe even be a little bit vulnerable in yourself and just see where your conversations go. So thank you so much, Anya. Thank you, Carly. Uh, and I hope all our listeners have got something to take away today. Thank you. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Carly. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Modern Mining Podcast. To find out more about the amazing work the TAD team do, please head to thinkactdifferently.com.au. This episode was recorded on Ghana land at Podbooth Studios, studio engineer Rory Nack, and produced and edited by Lauren McWhorter.